I discovered he was from the Orthodox Church there in Egypt, and, and he told me he was so excited to come to America because he was coming to what he heard was a Christian nation. And as I thought and listened, I didn't want to tell him, but I felt almost ashamed, almost embarrassed, knowing that what he was about to see on television, things that I know they don't even allow in Egypt, they live it, but they don't allow it on TV, I think, my, what is this man going to see? Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of 2 Timothy, and as we move into chapter 3 today in a message entitled, The Last Days, Pastor Carl compares the description by Paul to Timothy of what the last days will be like to conditions in today's world. And the similarities are frightening. These are dangerous days in which we live. The Bible calls them in this chapter, the last days. It calls these days difficult times. And I believe with all my heart and with all my soul that the sands of time are running low for this generation. I believe that we're in the shadows of the end of an age. I really don't believe that if the Lord allows me to live and doesn't take me soon, you know, in this hour this morning, one of my friends, dear friends, whom I had the chance to disciple in seminary, 47 years old, a pastor, went home to be with the Lord. They're doing his funeral as we speak. I wanted to be there, but I couldn't today. But I want to tell you, friend, he is coming and He is coming sooner than most of us realize. And I really believe that I may not live to be an old man, that Christ may come first. Now, I could be wrong, and I'm not one to set dates. No one has the right to set a date anywhere. But Jesus said, though no man knows the day or the hour, you will know when the time is near. He said, when you see these things, look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. And I've been a student of God's Word now for almost three decades. And if I'm reading Scripture right, I believe that we are very near for God to step out of heaven and to judge this old world. I'm not one who's trying to save this world. I'm not one of these social engineers who believe that ultimately you can make the world better. Now, I believe through the preaching of the gospel I can make the world better because if I lead a man to Christ and a family to Christ, you change enough individuals, enough families, you change a nation, you change a world. But I also know what Scripture says that my job is not to save this civilization from wreckage, but to save men and women, boys and girls, from the wreckage of this civilization. And there's only one way to do that, and that's through preaching the gospel. Because when a man, when a woman, when a boy and a girl get saved, they have a new direction, a new proclivity for holy things. And so we need not be defeated in these dark days in which we live. God has given us some counsel here this morning, not just to survive, but to thrive in the days in which this generation of Christians find themselves. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, where we left off last time. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. Now we've seen that the Apostle Paul is on his deathbed, so to speak. He's in a Roman prison, chained. He sees the flash of the executioner's sword in his mind's eye. He knows that he has come to the end of his life, so he can say, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which God, the righteous judge, will give not just to me, but to all who love his appearing. And so Paul, who for 30 years has preached the gospel, who has planted churches, who has consolidated the work of God, is concerned what will happen after he is dead and gone. And so he writes a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, man whom he personally won to Christ, to shore him up, to put some steel in his spine. Now, he knows from a human point of view that men can be weak, and he knows from a divine point of view that God will accomplish his purposes, that nothing shall prevail against God's church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But he knows, too, that from a human point of view, God uses courageous men and women who will stand up and preach the gospel. And so in every chapter in this epistle, he is dominated with the truth of the gospel. The theme of chapter 1 is to guard the gospel. Protected Timothy as a precious treasure, for that's what it is. It is the power of God to salvation. It is the power to lead men from heaven or from hell into heaven. Chapter 2, Timothy, suffer for the gospel. Because if you guard it and stand for it, sooner or later you will suffer for it. There will be people who will oppose you, but you must do it. And then in chapter 3, we're going to see next time, the key word in the whole chapter is the word continue. We're going to see this morning some men who will go from bad to worse, evil men who will live in these last days and who will try to influence the church. But Paul's admonition to Timothy is don't be influenced by them. Continue in the pattern in which you have walked. And then finally in chapter 4, he is to preach the gospel in season and out of season, in the church and out of the church. And so knowing that the opposition is strong, knowing that the days are evil, he's preparing Timothy to be a good pastor in the last days. Now, as you can see from your note-taking outline there in the back of your bulletin, I've uh, organized this portion of Scripture around two themes concerning the last days. Paul in these verses tells us something about the atmosphere of the last days. He tells us what it will be like for God's people. He gives us a picture of the environment. And then in addition, he tells us something about the agents of the last day, who it is that is creating this environment. So consider with me first this morning the atmosphere of the last days. Look again at verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, two truths I want to highlight for you from this verse of Scripture. First, we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Now, I think it would be helpful for us to define this very important biblical term found in this verse and other places called the last days. It would seem natural, I suppose, to apply it to some future time frame just before Jesus Christ returns from heaven. 
but the Bible does not restrict the usage of that term to those days exclusively. As you read through the New Testament, it becomes obvious that the apostles understood that the new promised age of the Old Testament had arrived with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so with His coming, the old age, the old covenant, the old deal had passed away and a new age had dawned. Thus, Peter could stand up on the birthday of the church when the old covenant promises were fulfilled through the coming of the Spirit and say, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. What they had seen that day with the promised Holy Spirit that could only come, He could only come until Christ had shed His blood and risen from the dead. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. So Peter sees what took place on the day of Pentecost as a fulfillment of what Joel said would happen in the last days. In addition, the writer to the Hebrews, when he opens his letter, says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And so the New Testament teaches that with the beginning of the birth of the church, we have been living in the last days. And we know that to be true, not just from other New Testament passages, but also from the immediate context. The fact that Paul gives Timothy some advice that it doesn't apply just to some future day when he's dead and gone, but to his day is evident. After he lists the kinds of people in verses 2 to 5 that will be around and living in this period of time, he tells Timothy, avoid such men as these. That means they were alive and well in his day. And so what Paul writes to Timothy is not simply a description of the future, but the day in which he found himself. But I think, too, as you study your Bible carefully, you have to conclude that we can not only speak in terms of last days, but also in terms of the last of the last days. Because in addition, very clearly, Holy Scripture speaks of some specific events, some specific prophecies that will be fulfilled in those days prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why in the Olivet Discourse, if you're not familiar, read Matthew chapters 24 and 25. It's a sermon that Christ gives concerning His return from heaven. And as He describes the days just prior to His return, He says, and because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now John says sin is lawlessness, and Jesus taught that before He comes back, lawlessness will be increased. He said in the same sermon, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. He's just described earthquakes, famine, persecution, and widespread sin, along with false prophets and a host of other issues. But we've always had those things. They were true in Paul's day. They're true in our day. But Jesus taught that there would be an increase of such things. We've always had famines and earthquakes, but he likened them to a woman with child. And Paul's going to do the exact same thing. In chapter, in chapter 3, verse 13 of this epistle, he said, but evil men and imposters will proceed. How? From bad to worse 
deceiving and being deceived. Like Christ's analogy with a woman in labor where the contractions increase in frequency and intensity, so Paul echoes the same truth. Sin will increase. Things will go from bad to worse. And so as we study a picture of what Paul describes to Timothy as something that is true in his day, we can expect the very things that he describes to go from bad to worse. So understand first, we learn from this verse and others as we build a biblical theology, we are living in the last days. And I believe before we're done this morning, you'll probably be convinced as I am that we are living in the last of the last days. Secondly, not only are we living in the last days, we're living in difficult times. Notice again, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The King James renders the Greek, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. The NIV renders it, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Ever since the birth of the church, ever since the coming of Pentecost, people have always been faced, God's people, with difficult, perilous, and terrible times. Church history readily confirms that. In fact, the Greek that is translated here on the New American Standard, difficult, perilous, in the King James and terrible in the NIV is a Greek word that was used outside of the Bible of a wild animal or of a raging sea. In addition, it's found in one other place in all the New Testament of the two Gerardine demoniacs. Remember, Jesus called them legion because there were many demons in them. And when Matthew in his gospel translates this same particular verb, he describes them as exceedingly violent, such that no one could pass by that road. This gives us an idea of what the last days will be like and what ultimately God's people will live through. Terrible times, perilous times, difficult times. Now, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not a picker of garbage when I tell you that our world is facing moral, spiritual, political, intellectual, social, international darkness and chaos. Anyone who just travels a little bit or picks up the daily newspaper can see that we are not getting better, that we are going from bad to worse. And there is no doubt that while these characteristics began to appear in Paul's day, I believe they are being intensified in our day. It's not simply that we have more people or that we have better news coverage. If you know history, you know that in many respects, the evil is growing deeper and with greater intensity. And what is being promoted and acceptable, accepted by society in a bolder way wasn't even true 30 or 40 years ago in much of the world. But now all of society seems to be in ferment and rebellion, and we are meeting these difficult days face to face. And I want to tell you, though, we haven't seen anything yet. When Jesus Christ ruptures this world by rapturing his church, that's the next event in God's prophetic calendar. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink your eye, all of God's people are going to be gone. And when God's spirit is removed from his indwelling presence in the church, when he is taken away, hell is going to have a holiday and you wouldn't want to be alive in those days. It will happen at a time when you don't think it will happen. And all of a sudden, there will be an unfolding of evil like this world has never seen. And Jesus said, unless God had cut those days short, no flesh would survive. 
Now, I suppose we need to ask an obvious question as we read this verse that we could easily overlook. Why does the Apostle Paul give an emphatic command to Timothy to realize or to understand or to mark this truth? I mean, after all, it seems evident that men have been opposed to the gospel. Paul himself had been arrested, chained, imprisoned, and about ready to die for his loyalty to the gospel. Timothy also knew that even amongst Christians who didn't want to be identified with Paul, as we saw in chapter 1, for fear of persecution, forsook him. All of the Asian church forsook him, with the exception of Vanessa Forrest and his household. And uh, he warned him in chapter 2 at the end of it, the last verse, that this godless chatter, this, these world battles, uh, word battles by these false teachers, that behind them was the devil who had captured men's hearts. So why does he enjoin him to consider to realize something that he already knows? I think two reasons. First, he wants to emphasize in Timothy's mind that this is not a passing characteristic, but it is a permanent trait of these days that we call the last days. Timothy, it's not going to quit. It's not going to let up. It's not going to end until Jesus comes back. In fact, Timothy, it needs to go for, it's going to go from bad to worse. Second, I think he wants him to understand that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. We need to realize this. We need to mark this in our minds. We need to help our children to understand that ultimately God teaches that things will go from bad to worse. Difficult days. That's the atmosphere of the, bad, of the last days. Second, in addition to its atmosphere, I want you to consider with me this morning the agents of the last day. Verse 2 immediately goes on to tell us, for men will be. Men are the agents of this trouble. Now, he uses the word anthropoi in the plural. He's speaking not just of men generically, but of men and women, of people. People will be. Men and women are responsible for the difficult times which the church must face. Fallen men, evil men, whose natures are perverted, whose behavior is self-centered, who Romans 7 says their mind is hostile to the law of God, who spread heresy and who promote false religion. Such men will be alive. Now, they're not working independently all by themselves. Paul has already reminded us in chapter 2 and verse 16 of some people who need to come to their senses and escape, note, the snare of the devil, having been held captive, uh, drunk by him, so to speak, literally, to do his will. Clearly, some are being driven by their captivity to the evil one. We've already learned in Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There have always been false teachers in the church, but again in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said as we move towards his return from heaven, there'll be an increase of false teachers. And of course, when the devil comes, he often parades himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come with a pitchfork and cloven hoofs and horns in his head. He comes like a holy, righteous pastor. But I want to tell you, behind a lot of false teaching are demons. Because of choices men have made, because of roads that they have chosen to walk down, deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons are being taught in this day. Now, 
In this first paragraph, he is now going to give us a portrayal of these men who will go from bad to worse in these last days. In verses 2 to 4, he describes their moral conduct. In verse 5, he wants us to understand their religious observance. And then in verses 6 through 9, he wants us to get a picture of their proselytizing zeal. First, their moral conduct. In the verses that follow, there are no fewer than 19 expressions used to describe the wicked people of the last days who increasingly turn away from God. And of course, if you know your Bible at all, you know that the stage is being set for the coming Antichrist the globalism of our day, this turning away from the one true God as seen in a growing evil and immorality worldwide is predicted in Holy Scripture. There is coming one whom Daniel calls the little horn, who is also called the man of sin by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, whom John the Apostle calls the Antichrist. And he is going to come not from the United States, not from the Middle East, but the Bible teaches from a revived Roman Empire. He's going to come from Europe. And so we should not be surprised that we can see the stage being set even in our day. It shouldn't cause us to be afraid or to panic or to, you know, get all upset. I've told you many times there's no panic in heaven, only plans. But even as it gets dark, even as it gets more wicked, in one sense it gets gloriously dark for the Christian because he knows the darker the hour, the brighter the light. And in the darkest moment, that's when the sun will rise. That's when the morning star will appear. Now, as we start through this list, it might be helpful to look at the first and last phrases in this catalog in which the rest of the characteristics are sandwiched. Notice verse 2. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money. And then he adds at the end, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now there's an emphasis on love in these verses. In fact, four of the 19 expressions given are compounded with the Greek word philos, philos, love. Lovers of their own selves, uh, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. In the repeated use of this word love, here in a negative sense, wants, Paul wants to paint for us a picture that is fundamentally wrong, a love that is misdirected. Vance Havner, that great preacher now home in heaven, used to repeatedly say, the heart of every problem is the problem of the human heart. And that's what Paul's going to paint for us here. God has created us and made us to love Him supremely, to love Him with all of our heart, our neighbor secondly, and thirdly, ourselves. But he says here that these are people who first love self, who last love God, and in between there is havoc with his neighbor. Notice, for men will be lovers of self, and then he adds, lovers of money. The one follows the other as night follows day, because when men are lovers of self, they become lovers of money. We live in a universe that is living for things. Now, we are to worship God. We are to love people, and we are to use things. But when we start worshiping ourselves, if we are lovers of self, in Paul's words, we begin to ignore God and we use people. And so I can guarantee you on the authority of this book that if that is your mindset, you will never be a fulfilled, satisfied person, even in all of your sin. And yet it characterizes... So many people in this world who are living for all that they can grab, all for that they can get, and they consider very little in terms of what they can give. The world is craving for things, which leads us to the next term on his list. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. He says boastful. The Greek word could also be translated 
braggart. When you love self, when you love money, you're consumed with self and you're consumed with things and you'll speak that which fills your heart. You'll become a braggart. You'll start telling people about how great you are, about how much you have and what you've accomplished, which leads us to the next term, arrogant. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, and then he adds arrogant. And all you have to do is listen to most of Hollywood, to most of the sports world, to most of the political world, and you will get a sample of arrogant people who are strutting themselves directly into hell, thinking that they're too good to be damned. Arrogance. And then he adds revilers. Now the word in the Greek text is blasphemeo or blasphemoi here, from which we get our English word blasphemy. And the word blasphemy can look at in two directions in the Bible both towards God and towards man who is made in the image of God. And so here translated revilers or slanders. And it naturally follows because inevitably people who have an exaggerated view of themselves will look in contempt with other people and will often slander them behind their back. They will blaspheme man and in so doing they are blaspheming God because man is made in his image. A few weeks ago I was on the airplane back from Frankfurt and God allowed me to sit next to a man from Egypt. And um, this was his first trip ever to America. He was coming here on immigrant status and hoping to make it his permanent residence. And we had an opportunity to, to talk and to speak, and God opened the door to share the gospel with him. And I discovered he was from the Orthodox Church there in Egypt. And, and he told me he was so excited to come to America because he was coming to what he heard was a Christian nation. And as I thought and listened, I didn't want to tell him, but I felt almost ashamed, almost embarrassed, knowing that what he was about to see on television, things that I know they don't even allow in Egypt, they live it, but they don't allow it on TV. I think, my, what is this man going to see? I mean, the devil, with all of his profanity and pornography that he is pumping right into the living rooms and movie theaters of people all across America, he's portraying an evil that this man was about getting to see. I, I read a conservative columnist from time to time. Maybe some of you read him, George Will. I find him rather interesting, and he wrote something recently that I clipped and I thought was interesting. He said this, and it is by now a scandal beyond irony that thanks to the energetic work of civil liberty fanatics, Pornographers enjoy expansive First Amendment protection, while first graders in a nativity play are said to violate First Amendment values. Now, I don't know where this man comes from spiritually, but I felt like his assessment here was accurate. You can turn on the television or go to the movies. You can hear all kinds of filth. You can attend a rock concert where there are obscenities beyond imagination taking place on the stage, and yet little boys and girls are not allowed to have a nativity scene in their school. Is it any wonder that some people are bent out of shape with a judge who just wants to put a rock man a monument of the Ten Commandments? By the way, I thought about that as I came back to the United States, and I saw it was front-page news. If you've ever been to the Supreme Court of the United States, in that room where those justices sit every time they meet, above their head, etched in stone, is a picture of the Ten Commandments. Little by little, the Christian influence in America is being whittled away as it already has been in other parts of the world. 
As we continue our look into this chapter, the third chapter of 2 Timothy, we'll see that the time of Jesus' return could be imminent, and unless we're prepared, we'll spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. For a copy of today's message, The Last Days, call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and ask for program 2TM6. It's available on DVD or on CD, and you can download it from our website, searchthescriptures.org, or by using the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow, Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at 2 Timothy as we search the Scriptures.